Well, I've been thinking a lot lately about the word anointing. Uh, it's kind of an old-fashioned sounding word sometimes when I hear myself say it. Uh, it's not a word really that you hear in church much anymore. If you grew up in church, uh, we used to talk about the anointing in church all the time. You don't hear that too much anymore because, first of all, it's a, uh, if we're being honest, it's a very religious-sounding word, a very churchy-sounding, maybe old-fashioned word. And secondly, a lot of people don't even really know exactly what that means anymore. So I think, by and large, we've dropped that word from our vocabulary in much of the church today. And yet, in one form or another, the word anointing, you know, it's used over 160 times throughout the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments, because, listen, anointing is actually a concept that is central to the Christian faith. In fact, the word Christ comes from the ancient Greek word Christos, which means anointed one, which is also the Greek equivalent of the ancient Hebrew word Meshiach, which means Messiah. So you cannot have the Christ without the anointing. The two are, are inextricably linked. First in the life of Jesus, who, quoting Isaiah, said of himself, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, Luke 4.18. And the same is true of his followers. The Apostle John wrote to the church, to you and me. He said, you have been anointed by the Holy One, 1 John 2.20. So just as there's no Christ without anointing, there's no Christian without anointing, which means it is profoundly important that we understand what it means to be anointed and for what purpose? Because honestly, when most people talk about anointing today, they're actually talking about talents or giftings. In the church today, we commonly confuse talent with anointing. We see someone with great talents in a particular area of ministry, and we talk about how anointed that person is. But listen, talent and anointing are actually two completely different things. Okay, if you're anointed for a particular ministry or task, you can actually serve God effectively in that area without great talent in that particular area, even if you think you can't. Right? Just ask Moses. God called Moses to Egypt, to the royal court, to those with the highest levels of education and talent and ability in the most powerful government in the world at the time to preach the truth of who God was, to demand the release of his people, and to lead them out of Egypt. And yet we're told in Exodus 4 and Exodus 6 that Moses had a serious speech impediment. He was a terrible public speaker. He did not have any talent in the area of oratory. We had, uh, he had no confidence in his ability to deliver the message because he had absolutely no gifting in that area of his life as a speaker or actually as a leader for that matter. So in uh, Exodus 3.11, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the, the children of Israel out of Egypt? In other words, hey God, I, I think you got the wrong guy. I'm not qualified. I'm not a leader. I'm not a public speaker. I have zero talent in those areas. And he says, oh, Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and tongue. In other words, my whole life, I haven't even been able to talk hardly. And then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go. And I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Exodus 4, 10 through 12. In other words, you don't need to rely on talent, Moses. 
because I'm going to anoint you for this very purpose, which means when the time comes, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak, right? That isn't Moses' talent he's talking about. It's God's anointing. Still, because Moses wouldn't quit complaining, God sends Aaron to go with him to make him feel better about it, but it is Moses who's anointed to lead the people out of Egypt, and that's exactly what he does. You see, you can achieve great things for God in your life without great talent. But without the anointing, you'd better just stay at home because you won't get anywhere in your life or accomplish anything of lasting value for God without his anointing actively at work in your life. And look, uh, by the way, it's not that talent is bad. You understand, talent is a gift from God. But in modern church culture, we have to be very careful that we're not replacing anointed preaching with talented speaking or anointed worship with talented performances or anointed leadership with talented professionals. And again, it's not that talent is bad, right? The best of both worlds, I suppose, is to have a talented speaker who's also an anointed preacher teaching the Word of God or to have a skillfully talented musicians and singers who are also anointed and leading the body of Christ in corporate worship or to have gifted leaders who are also anointed to shepherd the local churches. But listen, if you have to choose between the two, I'll take anointing every single Time. Because honestly, when you put a bunch of talented people in a room together, it is very easy to begin to rely on those talents in our lives more than we rely on the anointing of God in our lives. Which is precisely, by the way, what began the downfall of King Saul. He was imposing physically. He was skilled militarily. He was an exceptionally talented leader in many ways, but because he relied on his talent to the exclusion of the anointing of God in his life, eventually God not only rejects Saul's leadership, but he withdraws the anointing from Saul's life as well, as we'll see as we continue working our way through this book of 1 Samuel. And that, listen, the, the danger for us in relying on talent instead of anointing is the fact that talent doesn't require the presence or influence of the Holy Spirit. You know that talent doesn't require the presence or influence of the Holy Spirit. You can function out of your talents and do impressive things without anointing all day long. And listen, uh, people will follow you. That's the danger. right? If we're not careful, we can actually deceive ourselves and mislead other people when we confuse our talents with God's anointing because then we're relying on and following ourselves instead of the Holy Spirit, which again, is, this is exactly what happened with Saul. So let's jump back into this text where we left off last time and see what this story has to teach us about the purpose and power and effect that the anointing of God can have in our lives when we learn to necessarily depend on God's anointing more than we rely on our own talents. So 1 Samuel 16, we'll start with the first five verses. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. 
You shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So the Lord tells Samuel there's a time to grieve and then there's a time to get on with the work he's called us to. And so he tells Samuel to fill his horn with oil and go to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse, who was the grandson of Ruth and Boaz, in order to anoint one of Jesse's sons as the next king of Israel. And Samuel replies, uh, hey God, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Keep in mind, anointing another man as king is the official authoritative uh, confirmation that he is to be king. There was no other more legal, ceremonial, or spiritual way of confirming someone into office than anointing, which Saul understood well because he was anointed by Samuel as king back in chapter 10. And even though Saul had been rejected by God as king, he was still functioning as the king. The transition from Saul's kingship to David's was still a long way off, which means in Saul's eyes, for Samuel to anoint another man as king while Saul was still acting as king, that was nothing short of treason, which is why Samuel is concerned about Saul killing him, and rightly so. And so God says to Samuel, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord, which was true. It just wasn't all the truth, which some people have a hard time with, this idea that, that God would not disclose all the truth when protecting his people are working out his purposes in their life. And yet he's actually been doing that throughout human history. In Exodus 1, the Hebrew midwives refused to kill the male Hebrew babies as ordered by Pharaoh. And then they lied to Pharaoh about it. And the passage says that because of what they did, God dealt well with the midwives. Exodus 1.20. In Joshua 2, Rahab lied to the king's men in Jericho in order to protect the Hebrew spies, which was clearly, if you read the story, a part of God's plan for Rahab and the spies, right? And it comes right on through to modern history. Scores of men and women who hid Jews in their homes in Nazi Germany in order to save them from extinction, and yet they lied to the German soldiers about the fact that they were harboring God's people in their houses. The point is, God knows what's best and what is needed in every situation in order to protect his people and work out his purposes in their lives, which proved to be true in this situation with Samuel as well. And so Samuel does what he's told. When he gets to Bethlehem, the elders of the city come out to meet him trembling. And they ask Samuel, do you come peaceably? Which seems strange at first because Samuel's been serving the people of God since he was a boy and they all knew it. But there was something else they all knew about Samuel. If you were here last week, at the end of the last chapter, after Saul failed to kill Agag, the pagan Amalekite king, as ordered by God, Samuel picks up a sword right in front of King Saul and his men and hacked Agag to pieces, according to verse 33. Something none of them would ever forget and without a doubt would have also spread to all the people of Israel. The fact that their resident prophet, Samuel chopped up an enemy king with a sword. And so the elders of Bethlehem wisely display their newfound healthy respect for Samuel, who reassures them that he's come peaceably to sacrifice, which he invites Jesse and his sons to participate in once they've consecrated themselves, which involved washing themselves and their clothing, which, of course, is all building up to the moment where one of Jesse's sons will be chosen and anointed as the next king of Israel. 
which was done, uh, just some backstory with oil, symbolically back then and still is today. And, and so uh, what the oil is doing in the physical realm is symbolic of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the spiritual realm. And so uh, although there have always been very real practical physical benefits to applying different oils to your body in different ways, and there still is, but look, there's a much deeper meaning to the act of being anointed. Originally, anointing was a common practice of shepherds because lice and other insects would get into the wool of the sheep and they would work their way gradually up to the head of the animal where they would burrow into the sheep's ears and it would often cause the sheep to die. And so ancient shepherds would pour large amounts of oil on the sheep's head, which made the wool slippery and therefore impossible for the insects to get near the sheep's ears because the insects would actually slide off. And so it was out of that common practice that anointing became symbolic of blessing and protection and healing and even the empowerment of the sheep. And so today, we still anoint people with oil when we pray for the sick, as we are instructed to in James 5.14. Also, when we ordain new pastors or dedicate a home or some other object to the Lord or when praying for any other uh, great need in someone's life, the oil is poured out on us as a sign of the Holy Spirit being poured out in our lives, providing for us His blessing and protection and healing and empowerment. And so just as the bread and wine for communion represent the body and blood of Christ, the oil represents the Holy Spirit and His work in our lives. And it was considered a profoundly important ritual for the Hebrew people with profound implications for the one being anointed, as we'll see uh, with David in our story today. And yet, it's very important to understand that this act of anointing wasn't David's calling to become king. Okay, It was his confirmation as king. The, the calling on David's life was there long before David was ever born. He makes that clear, in fact, in Psalms. He was called to be king over Israel before the foundations of the earth. But look, that calling wasn't confirmed in his life until he was anointed. This is part of the significance that we need to understand about anointing. The anointing confirms your calling. It signifies the fact that you've been set apart for a specific purpose. And again, the actual anointing of the, uh, is the Holy Spirit. Okay, When we talk about anointing, we're talking about the Holy Spirit in your life. The oil, when it's used, is just a symbol of that. So there's nothing magic about the oil. So when we talk about anointing today, whether we use oil in the process or not, when we talk about anointing, we're talking about the Holy Spirit being poured out into your life, which, among other things, confirms God's calling in your life. Remember what Jesus said about himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Remember what the Apostle John said. If you're a believer and follower of Christ, you have been anointed by the Holy One. So, for example, when we uh, anoint a new pastor... We're not calling him into the ministry. No, at that point, he's already been called into the ministry by God. Our anointing is simply a confirmation of that calling by recognizing the anointing of the Holy Spirit in that person's life for pastoral ministry. And look, uh, recognizing that the Holy Spirit anointing in your own life, recognizing that it's there, is vitally important to making sure you're actually doing what God created and called you to do with your life. Okay, because listen, you can rely on your talents to achieve 
success in some areas of your life. But that's not the work God has actually called you to. Then, uh, then you're operating out of talent alone, right? Instead of operating out of an anointing for that work. And as a result, ultimately, you end up following success instead of following the Holy Spirit. One of the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys, Acts 16, 6 through 8 says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they'd come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. The Holy Spirit forbade Paul and Timothy to do their missionary work in Asia and Bithynia and Mysia. Why? Did the people in Asia and Bithynia and Mysia not need the gospel? Of course they did. But the specific calling on Paul's life did not include missionary work in those areas at that point in his life. And so as effective of a speaker as Paul was, as powerful his ability to persuade was, as educated and experienced and talented and battle-tested in in proving the gospel and sharing the gospel that Paul was, the anointing for gospel work in Asia and Bithynia and Mysia was not there in Paul's life. Not, Not at this point, at least. And listen... Not because the people in those areas didn't need Jesus. They surely did. But because God had called and anointed Paul for gospel work in Macedonia instead, as the story goes on to explain. And so that's where Paul went. Okay? The point is, you can do a lot of things in your life. A lot of good things in your life. But if you're pouring your time and energy into something you aren't actually called and anointed by God to do, then you're going to have to rely on your talents alone in that work because the anointing for that work isn't there. And the problem with that is your talent will only take you so far. Which means if you want to sink your time and energy, and yes, talent, into work that you've been specifically called to and anointed for, then you have to learn to follow the Spirit's leading in your life. Paul was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go into Asia, but how did he know that? How did Paul know that? Because he was listening. He was listening to the voice of the Spirit in his life. And of course, uh, people want to know all the time. They ask me all the time. Outside of an audible voice from God, how do you know what the Spirit is saying to you? The answer is, it comes out of a deep relationship with Him. Again, the Apostle John explains this. He says, the anointing that you received from Him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. 1 John 2, 27. You see, anointing is all wrapped up in abiding. You want his anointing in your life to teach you about everything, as John says? You want to hear his voice in your life? That means you have to abide in him. It's the Greek word meno. It means to stay. Okay? After, uh, after 27 years of marriage, I can look at my wife from across the room today. And as soon as she looks at me, I can tell if she wants me to come over to where she is. I can tell if she's ready to leave. I can tell if she's mad at me, especially that one. I can tell if she's happy. I can tell if she's proud of me. On and on and on it goes. The fact is, I can tell a whole story about what she's thinking without 
ever audibly hearing her speak a word. You know why? Because we've stayed together for nearly 30 years. There is an abiding relationship between us to the extent and depth that her audible voice in my life is just as real as the audible one. Her inaudible voice in my life is just as real as the audible one. But listen, listen, if I only talked to her for three minutes a day before bedtime and rarely gave her a thought beyond that or a glance or time to talk or time to listen or showed any appreciation or affection or honor or interest or much of anything else beyond that, right? If, if I almost never spent any time with her, well, first of all, what kind of relationship would we have? And secondly, how well would I be able to understand her, to hear her voice in my life if I barely even know her? And I know that that sounds ridiculous, but that's just how we treat the Holy Spirit. And then we wonder why we can't hear his voice. What I'm afraid of is that my brothers and sisters in Christ are going to miss out on the true calling on their lives, in this life, because they're not listening to what he's saying, because they've replaced his anointing with their talents. And as a result, they're following success instead of following him. But listen, it is the anointing that confirms your calling, that confirms you're on the right path in this life, not success. Scottish theologian William Barclay once said, there are two great days in a person's life, the day we're born and the day we discover why. Let's keep reading, verses 6 through 13. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. And he didn't mean uh, I've rejected him as a person, as we'll see in a moment. It just means for this, he's not anointed for this particular role. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made Shammah pass by. And, Jesse, uh, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So Samuel begins to size up the sons of Jesse because although God told him to anoint a son of Jesse, he didn't tell Samuel which one. So beginning with Eliab, who was obviously tall and physically imposing, just like Saul. And so Samuel thinks to himself, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And of course, God can read Samuel's mind. So he says, hey, bud, we've already been through this with Saul, and we all know how that turned out, right? Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. In other words, you are looking at all of his talent, his stature, his impressive physical nature, but he's not the one whom I will anoint as king. And by the way, it's not as if Eliab 
was a bad guy, had no anointing of his own in service to God. On the contrary, 1 Chronicles 27, 18, David appoints his brother Eliab as ruler over Judah. He's referred to as Elihu there. It's the same guy. So again, it's not that his brothers had no calling or anointing of their own. They surely did. It was simply a matter of each one of them following God based on his anointing for them instead of following success based on their own talents. And so Samuel goes right down the list of all the brothers save one who's not there because David was the youngest and in his father's eyes insignificant really in standing at least with the family which is not only evident in the fact that David was out keeping sheep which was a servant's job but his father never even mentions David's name in addition to the fact that David uh, obviously wasn't even invited to be at the sacrifice or the meal with the rest of the family otherwise he would have been there with the other brothers and so when Samuel asks are all your sons here Jesse replies there remains the youngest that word youngest is the Hebrew word katan it means a diminutive in quality or in size in other words someone who is the least in every way which again just shows how low regard they had for David among his own family nonetheless Samuel insists that his youngest brother the least among them is brought to him in fact uh, he says to all the people there, we will not sit down, which means we're not going to eat this meal, right, from this sacrifice until this youngest brother is brought to me. And you can bet somebody was chucking it out there in the fields to find David because they're hungry. And so we don't know for certain, by the way, um, how old David was at the time. The first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus says that David was 10 years old at this point. There are other scholars who believe he was closer to 15. Either way, he was young and not considered a serious option for the great prophet Samuel to anoint. And yet as small and insignificant as David seemed to his family, he would become one of the most revered men in all of the Bible, mentioned over a thousand times throughout the pages of Scripture, more than Abraham, more than Moses, and more than any other mortal man in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus was not referred to as the son of Abraham, was he? Or the son of Moses? No, he was referred to as the son of David. So how did David, how did David go from being an obscure, small, insignificant, nearly forgotten shepherd boy out in the wilderness to one of the most important characters in all of the Bible and indeed in all of human history? It's because of the anointing. Okay, the anointing empowers you to carry out your calling. And look, uh, whatever your talents are, whether it's in business or uh, some other professional field or skilled work or vocational ministry or raising a family, whatever it is, just back up a couple steps. First of all, you understand it's all ministry. All of that is ministry. In fact, the call of God on every single one of our lives is exactly the same. Every one of us is called to make disciples that is our calling which means instead of asking the question what is God's plan for my life what we really should be asking is what is God's plan for this world and how do I fit into that plan right? because the calling is the same for every one of us and yet it is also true that each one of us has unique opportunities and abilities and talents to carry out that calling in all sorts of unique and creative ways and all of that is good and right until we begin to rely on those abilities and talents more than we rely on the Holy Spirit's anointing in our lives. 
You see, because no matter how great your talents in certain areas may be, your talents will never take you as far as the anointing will, not even close. Right? Why, why do you think God was willing to risk Samuel's life in order to make sure David was anointed? Think about that. Why didn't God just declare David king and spare Samuel the risk of being killed by Saul for treason? It's because there had to be an anointing. Because without the anointing, there's no power. At least not the kind of power you have to have in order to live the kind of life that you were created to live. I mean, sure, you can have a good moral life. Yes. You can live a conservatively religious life. Of course, you can live a culturally Christian life without the anointing. Yes. The problem is that's not the life he created you to live. No, the life he created for you, you have absolutely no hope of living without the power of the anointing at work inside of you. You can't do it on your own strength. Every time anyone in the Bible ever tried, they failed miserably. Saul being the most immediate example. He failed miserably because he thought his natural talent and strength would be enough. Listen, it wasn't enough for Saul. And here's the news flash. It's not enough for you either. Okay, if you want to live the kind of extraordinary life that God means for you to live, then you're going to have to learn to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit who you were anointed with, by the way, when you became a child of God and He poured that Spirit into you. Because look, as long as you rely on your talents alone, you will only ever attempt to go as far as those talents can take you. Are you with me? When you rely on your talents alone, You'll only attempt to go as far as those talents can take you. That's the problem with talents in our lives. Right? Talents are good to have. Listen, as long as you understand those talents are also limitations. Talents are actually limitations in your life because they can only take you so far. Whereas the anointing supplies you with unlimited power, the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life you could never imagine or even attempt on natural abilities and talents alone. So yes, be grateful for your talents and by all means use them for God's glory, but don't limit yourself. Don't limit what you can accomplish or become in this life by relying on those talents to the exclusion of something infinitely more powerful the anointing of the Holy Spirit in your life Oswald Chambers once said every element of our own self-reliance must be put to death by the power of God let's finish our story for today verse 14 to the end of the chapter now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him and Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Gee, thanks, fellas. Thanks for pointing that out. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who's skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Listen, uh, he's a young boy still, but he's been anointed now. 
We find out later that when he's out there in the fields with his sheep, he'd killed a lion and a bear, right? He's operating under a different kind of power. He's operating under the anointing. You think those stories were kept to David? No, that's how we know about them. They were spread all over. Everybody knew about him, right? The Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son who is with the sheep. Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he's found favor in my sight. Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So the anointing of the spirit of God in Saul's life is replaced with a harmful spirit that torments him because of Saul's unrelenting rejection of God and the constant resistance in his life to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And this is another passage that some people struggle with, that a good God would send a spirit to trouble someone. But listen, just as Isaiah spoke for the Lord, he said, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Isaiah 45, 6 and 7. So this was judgment in Saul's life for rejecting God. And of course, as a result, Saul's miserable. He's inconsolable and he's in and out of this severe mental anguish, like distress and depression until his servants suggest a remedy. Someone who could skillfully play music to help Saul feel better, which may sound to us sort of like a random suggestion, but in fact, it was common, uh, a common belief in antiquity that music could ward off evil spirits. And so someone suggests David, who was brought to Saul, along with an offering from his father, which was customary. You never came into the king's court empty-handed. And sure enough, whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand, so Saul was refreshed and was well in the harmful spirit departed from him. Now, now look, there's no question that David had talent. But this was far more than talent at work because as good as music can be, it is not well-performed music that wards off evil in the spirit realm or in your life. You know what it is? Anointed worship. The fact is the anointing transforms your worship, okay? When Jesus said God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, must worship in spirit and truth, John 4, 24, that's the very definition of anointed worship. Worship that is in truth. In other words, worship that abides in Christ, who is the truth, that is also offered by way of the anointing of the Holy Spirit within us, spirit and truth that is anointed worship and it is more than pleasing to the ear it is powerful to tear down strongholds in people's lives to set us free from all sorts of spiritual captivity to thwart the work of the enemy and to fill every void in our hearts and lives with the glory of god listen it was the sounding of trumpets and voices that collapsed the mighty walls of jericho and joshua 6 
It was the worship from Paul and Silas in prison that brought on an earthquake that shook the prison doors and opened and freed them from their shackles in Acts 16. It was 300 men blowing trumpets in Gideon's army that defeated 135,000 Midianites in Judges 7. And it was the worship of the Israelites with instruments and singers that filled the temple of God with the cloud of his glory so thick it says the priests could not enter in second chronicles 5 there is so much power in anointed worship and yet it is largely an untapped resource by so many believers today who think our worship is simply a way of showing appreciation and thanksgiving to God by singing nice songs about him when in reality worship is one of the most powerful means of spiritual warfare ever devised and given to the people of God by the way Worship isn't just about music, right? Music is simply a talent that is given to us to be used in the worship of God. And yet the greater the talent, listen, the greater the talent, the greater the limitation if the worship is not anointed. The greater the talent, the greater the limitation if the worship is not anointed because then all we're doing is following the talent instead of following the anointing of the Spirit of God. The anointing, by the way, that tears down strongholds, that breaks open prison doors and defeats the plans of the enemy and fills our lives with the glory of God. That's the difference between singing songs and offering anointed worship. When we worship in spirit and in truth, when we abide in him, even in our worship, things begin to change. Listen, they change first in the spiritual realm and then in the natural physical realm. It always follows. That is the depth and power of anointed worship. The great evangelist D.L. Moody once said, there's no use in running before you're sent. There's no use in attempting to do God's work without God's power. A man working without this unction, a man working without this anointing, a man working without the Holy Ghost upon him is losing time after all. Okay? Before the foundations of the earth were laid, you were called. You were called by God to live an extraordinary life for him and for his glory. When he was knitting you together in your mother's womb, he infused certain gifts and talents into your DNA to be used in the service of God and for his glory as you live out that extraordinary life that you were created to live. Yet do you understand? Not one drop of that calling or gifting had any value or use in your life whatsoever until the moment he saved you and anointed you with his Holy Spirit. See, it's the anointing that makes it all possible, that confirms that calling, that empowers you to live it out, and that transforms your worship into warfare. So yes, yes, make the most of your talents. Yes, leverage all of your abilities and yes celebrate your successes as long as you never forget that at the end of the day every ounce of talent every gifting and ability and every single success 
must kneel in reverence and in service to the anointing of the Holy Spirit in your life. Let's pray.